Hi, this is Chris Campbell, and welcome to the Food Institute podcast. Today, we will be speaking with Rick Abraham, a partner at Pentelect regarding food distribution in the U.S. and larger themes in the industry stemming from the COVID-19 pandemic. But first, whether you are a first-time listener or becoming something of a regular, we ask that you share this episode on your social media platforms. It really helps us expand our reach, and we appreciate it when you do so. That said, I'll introduce Rick and start by asking how he's doing today. So how are you, Rick? Good morning, Chris. I am doing fine, thank you. Um, given all the circumstances of what's going on in the world today, I'm happy to be talking with you today. I'm a longtime fan of the uh, Food Institute and the work that you guys produce. So thank you for the opportunity to speak with you today. Uh, we really appreciate you coming on the show today. So those who are uh, maybe a little bit less familiar with Pentelect, could you give a little bit of background on the company and yourself too, so people have an idea of where you're coming from? Yeah, sure. Let me go back all the way to the beginning. Um, I started out, uh, I'm going to admit my age a little bit here in the food business uh, in the early 1980s. Um, and I have spanned both food service and in the uh, retail. So let's just say the food business in general, working for manufacturers. I've got some distribution background and I've got some broker background. So I think I, you know, other than being an operator, uh, I have a fairly well-rounded uh, level of exposure to all facets of the food business. Uh, and I did that for about uh, 35 years. And uh, a year or so ago, I joined Pentelect which is a uh, strategy consulting firm uh, based out of Chicago with four other, we call ourselves the geezers <laughs> because we're all, we're, we're all industry veterans have been around a long time. And uh, we engage primarily with manufacturers, although not exclusively, uh, helping them build strategy and uh, you know, to improve their, uh, their results. Okay. And I think that broad background in the food business is going to help the discussion today. And what I'd like to open up with is this question. So the COVID-19 public health crisis and resulting stay-at-home orders have really had markedly different effects on the food industry. And we've seen a dynamic split between food retail and food service. So I was wondering if you could discuss how the food supply chain in the U.S. has adapted to this new dynamic. I sure can, Chris. And boy, that is a big topic. Uh, we could probably spend several podcasts trying to cover that. Uh, we are, to say we are in an unprecedented times, I guess, is, is an understatement. Um, and since, um, I guess, mid-March of this year, uh, we're really in uncharted territory across the food uh, supply chain. Um, and, and it's been an incredible thing to watch. I guess somebody's going to probably write a book about it someday uh, to see how an industry reacts to an almost immediate 90 plus percent drop in volume overnight. I mean, think about that. That's just an incredible experience for a supply chain to react to. Um, and specifically to your question, what we've seen is in terms of consumer behavior uh, with the shutting down of uh, the away from home food market, um, folks have stayed at home and uh, started shopping on the uh, in the grocery stores and other non quote food service outlets, which has really ramped up the business, uh, particularly for prepared and frozen foods um, uh, on the retail CPG side of the business and having that and you know leading to a, a a reduction in the volume on the food service side. So there really has been sort of a yin and a yang um, where retail has exploded in volume, not in every channel, but in many. 
and uh, food service has dropped off the precipice. I like to describe it as triage mode. Uh, virtually every company, manufacturer, operator, broker, distributor, uh, supermarket, and so on, are trying to triage the damage uh, that the pandemic has caused. And, um, you know, that is something, again, we're in uncharted territory. No one really has a blueprint to do. So we're seeing some some very interesting uh, adaptations to the pandemic. Uh, you know, one of the things I mentioned in, in the article I submitted for one of your upcoming reports is, uh, you know, there's always been a pretty clear divide between retail and food service. Uh, but we started seeing things like food service distributors opening up their warehouse centers to customers off the street, non-business customers going from a B to C, I'm sorry, from a B to B model to a B to C model. We've seen food service distributors provide labor to retailers who couldn't handle the increase in volume. Uh, these are unprecedented things that have never happened before. And again, as a result of this triage mode, um, forced a lot of companies to sort of relook at their supply chain uh, to figure out ways to stay viable um, and then help out uh, the rest of the supply chain to get get everybody through this pandemic. Following up on that question, you were just talking about the triage aspect regarding the food supply chain and how a lot of distributors are going to that direct-to-consumer model. Um, and before the pandemic, the U.S. had a variety of food supply chains, but really we had the two that were focused on retail, and then we had one that was focused on food service. And do you think the nation would benefit if that were more consolidated, or should it go back to this dual-channel or you know multiple-channel model after the pandemic era ends? That's a great, great question, Chris. And, and I do believe that there are a lot of inefficiencies and duplication in our food supply chain because we have so many distinct and separate supply chains serving what truly is just a single customer. So, um, you know, in the old days, we could get away with that as an industry. The industries were growing eight to 10 percent. Um, and everybody was making a fairly healthy bottom line. So the fact that a manufacturer would have literally different sales and production um, environments within their company to service multiple channels was okay because there was enough profit to support that. Um, you know, but when you think through back to 2007, 2008, and the recession hit, um, the volume and profitability of a lot of companies was reduced significantly, but yet we didn't really change how food is sold in both the food and food service, uh, the retail and food service supply chains kind of always did it the same way. And that has exposed a lot of weaknesses in my, my view um, that a smarter manufacturer and other companies in these channels would look to consolidate and get much more efficient in how they bring products to market, including uh, blurring the lines between what is now separate supply chains. I like to use the term omni-channel. Um, you know, when you and I go to a grocery store or a restaurant or we stay in a hotel uh, or our kids are eating in school, we're blind to the supply chain. You know, we're neutral, if you will. We don't really care how the food gets there as long as it's there. Um, and that gets to that single consumer there. It seems unnecessary and duplicative and it adds quite a bit of cost that ultimately is borne by that consumer by having all these different supply chains. So I'm hoping the pandemic will wake some people up to that fact. 
Um, I've been singing this song for quite a while that uh, we've got too much duplication in the system and uh, it's not as efficient as it should be and the customers pay the price. So now that I'm hearing where you think the food supply chain should go, where do you think it will be three to five years down the line? Boy, if I had a good answer to uh, an accurate answer to that question, I'd uh, I'd probably be making a lot more money than I'm doing now, Chris. Uh, but I do have I do have a view on that, and uh, I've been a student of this industry for many many years. And you know, there's a couple of truisms: one, that ultimately all supply chains eventually consolidate. Um, and there's a predictable pattern to that and a predictable pace. Uh, and ultimately what you end up with, and I think this is what we will, where we will get to, uh, at least on the food service side, um, is some very, very large players in both the manufacturer, distribution and operator side uh, and the broker side as well. Um, then there'll be a scant group of companies in the middle. Um, and then there'll be a really large group of very small, what I would call independent or niche players. Um, and I think ultimately that's how we're going to, we're going to evolve. I don't know if it's going to happen in the three to five year window. I, I think it will. Um, and, and again, there's some characteristics here, the very large companies, are living and breathing on volume. Uh, they're generalists. They sell a lot of product, push it through their systems, and that's how they make their money. Uh, the companies on the other end, the niche and smaller players, rather than being generalists, tend to be specialists. Um, and they sell less volume, but they sell it at a higher margin. And if you look at most supply chains, whether it be the auto industry or the hardware industry and numerous others, you'll see this pattern um, to one degree or another evolve. And I don't think the food business is, is any different than any other supply chain. Uh, so I do think that's where we're headed. And I think that speaks to the article you contributed to the July 20 edition of the Food Institute report. And in that article, you argued the industry will likely see a reduction in fragmentation and an increase in polarization. And I think you just kind of explained your thinking on that topic. But you also said in that article, mid-sized companies could get caught in the middle and face major challenges. And you brought up Maine's paper and food service as an example of this before it encountered uh, bankruptcy. So what could a company do if they're in that middle space you were talking about to successfully pivot one way or the other? Uh, that's a, that's another great question, Chris. Let me just back up um, and, and attack it, um, getting back to the point that I just made. Uh, when I say we're going to have a reduction in fragmentation in its simplest form, that means there will be fewer companies um, and fewer duplicate, less duplication and um, costs and such will get much more streamlined. And then on the polarization side, meaning you're going to have very large companies at the top end, very small companies at the, at the lower end, and then the middle sort of vanishes. Uh, when's the last time you went into a you know, local hardware store uh, in whatever town in, in America. Um, I mean, they're there, but there are very few of them. Um, the big guys tend to dominate, you know, in that category. And again, there are multiple supply chains where you can find examples like that. Uh, in the middle, uh, I don't want to necessarily say middle-sized companies will go away, um, but it becomes very difficult to be profitable. Be and here's the reason why. You're not big enough to compete with the big guys, and you're not small enough to play with the small folks. So what you end up doing is try to compete on both sides and that stresses your cost structure. 
and therefore your profitability drops down and many companies are unable to survive that in the long term. So ultimately what happens is they get gobbled up by larger companies. Um, that's a likely scenario for a lot of mid-sized, for example, regional distributors today, um, smaller regional manufacturers, and then on the operator side, uh, you know, we've already seen a tremendous amount of consolidation, even pre-pandemic, at, at that level. So merging and being acquired is a likely scenario for these folks to survive. Um, you, can, you can't get smaller. I mean, it's very difficult if you're a company of X size to go to a company that's 70% less X, uh, at least not on purpose. It's very, very difficult to do that. So uh, more than likely, a lot of those companies are going to be uh, acquired by larger companies or truthfully and sadly go out of business. So I'd like to change gears here a little bit, um, not entirely, but I'd like to start talking about the Salesforce aspect of the COVID-19 pandemic and the challenges teams are facing there. So what kind of issues are you seeing that sales teams are facing in response to the pandemic and the related restrictions that have affected business as normal? Well, in the work that we're doing, uh, Chris, with our clients, most are wondering what their sales teams, their marketing teams need to look like post-pandemic. And, and obviously, nobody knows 100% when this is going to end and what the ultimate will impact will be. But the thought process generally is there are going to be fewer customers to sell, either through industry fragmentation or a lot of them going out of business or being merged or acquired with other companies. Um, so in, in its simplest sense, fewer points of contact at customer level will require different types of sales teams to go out and sell that group of companies. Uh, then you couple in things like marketing. How do you communicate to a, that smaller group that in some cases is gonna have to be contactless? Uh, less face-to-face -face selling is going to be required. Um, so you know that naturally leads to an increase in your digital footprint. Uh, how can you service customers, sell customers, show your products in what has traditionally been a face-to-face -face business uh, in a contactless scenario? So I think we're going to see significant ramp ups in the technological uh, go-to-market uh, focus for a lot of companies selling in both sides of the uh, food and food service channel. And I'm not sure anybody has that figured out at this early stage, Chris, but it goes well beyond, you know, just go to our website and order food. Um, you know, virtually any company can do that today, but that's those are baby steps toward whatever our ultimate future is going to look like. So, you know, if you're a manufacturer, uh, selling in, in either space, or if you're a distributor, you have fewer points of contact to sell. Oftentimes you have to do it digitally. Uh, what does that look like? Um, you know, it isn't the sales force that you currently employ. It isn't the marketing department that you currently deploy to get your branding and differentiation messages out. It has to change. And unfortunately, and I, I think we'll probably get to this a little later with some of the other questions. It's going to require some significant strategy and vision and leadership that we don't often see, and at least in the food service space, to get us there. 
I would definitely like to follow up on the leadership aspect, and I think we can talk about that a little bit, but I would like to follow up with another question regarding sales forces here. And I know you're saying that there's a lot of changes coming and there's a lot of things that companies are going to have to adapt to. Is there anything that a company could do right now during the pandemic to increase their sales effectiveness? Yeah, absolutely. We've been advising our clients uh, a couple of different uh, areas there, Chris. Um, from a strat strategic point of view, we, we like to call it the white the whiteboard approach. So let's get a group of smart people in a room and say, let's say we're building this company starting today. Let's look at the realities of what the customer scenario and environment looks like today. And then let's build a go-to-market strategy around what that customer looks like and how we satisfy those customers' needs and also sell enough product uh, that makes us a profitable company. And literally, you throw away everything you're currently doing and you whiteboard it and start start fresh. Now, that's a great longer-term vision, um, and we encourage our clients to, to go through that uh, intellectual exercise because ultimately it's going to help build the strategic plan for the next three, five, seven, uh, 10 years. Um, and then you couple that with um, some specific, more tactical things you can do, which is to simplify virtually every process in the organization. Your uh, people and how they are deployed, your differentiation strategies, uh, the products that you sell. Uh, I reference also in the article SKU rationalization. Uh, there's too many products in the supply chain. So if you've got the 80-20 um, principle um, with your product mix where 20% of your items are delivering 80% of your profit, you need to get rid of a whole bunch of SKUs and streamline and specialize in what you're really good at. And again, overly oh, just simplify that process. Um, another key point that that um, often goes overlooked is uh, the need to differentiate. You know, there are what uh, an operator has an opportunity to buy like 27 different SKUs of French fries, frozen French fries <laughs> at a minimum. Uh, you know, that's probably not necessary. How many dessert, frozen dessert cake op options does an operator need? You know, we're already seeing operators and retailers streamline um, either their menu offerings or what they're stocking on their shelves. And of course, that will result in a, um, uh, a ripple effect through this back through the supply chain of having less products. So um, it really is simplify differentiate and really be brilliant in terms of execution. Um, make sure, um, you know, that old uh, expression about having the right people on the bus in the right seats, all heading in the same direction. I think the pandemic really magnifies the need to make sure every organization if they're going to succeed, is following that type of path. Every bus needs a bus driver. So I think that kind of segues into the leadership aspect we referenced earlier. Uh, so what other types of leadership skills do you think executives need in the food industry right now as it evolves to contend with the post-pandemic business landscape? Again, I'm going to give a little bit of historical context before I uh, dig into an answer for that. Again, when, you're, when, when food service and food is growing at a healthy rate and profits are good, there really isn't 
wasn't a huge need for innovation and strategy and leadership and vision. I mean, obviously that happens, but it tends to take a backseat because everybody's happy making the money. Wall Street's, in many cases for public companies, is happy. Uh, it's only when stresses appear and cracks appear in companies' success that we find out whether or not there's true leadership at the top of that company. And this is a personal opinion of mine, uh, but uh, again, I've uh, said this publicly and in writing before, I believe we have a serious lack of leadership vision within the food service company, uh, food service industry in general. I'm certainly not indicting any, any particular person, but overall, uh, I find it incredible that the industry has not progressed as far and as, as um, uh, deeply as other industries that saw their world change and they adapted accordingly. So to give you a couple of examples, there was, uh, you know, we've, we've got the pandemic, obviously, nobody knows where it's going. A lot of companies still in triage mode out of necessity. And a large uh, national broadline distributor announced yesterday a reorganization within their, their uh, uh, warehousing and field sales management teams, a restructure, if you will, um, uh, moving towards a more regionalized model. Now, having been around for the 30 so odd years I've been in this industry, I have seen companies, not just distributors, regionalize, then centralize, then a few years later, regionalize, then go back to centralization and kind of uh, yo-yo back and forth. Uh, for a company to be sitting in the in the midst of this pandemic and say we're going to move from a centralization to a regionalization strategy, to me, is a serious lack of leadership. It's it's um, uh, rearranging the deck chairs on the Titanic, if you will. And I've seen that pattern repeated over and over and over again. Um, let's cut heads. Let's. Um, uh, reorganize and restructure. And again, we're just sort of reshuffling the deck without making any substantial differentiation in, in how we bring our products to market. Um, so I, I know that's a bit of a negative perspective, but I've talked to a lot of my industry associates and friends over the years who agree with that point of view. We, we need leaders in our industry that can get past the quarterly reports to Wall Street, as difficult that, as that is, and lead their companies into um, the next level uh, of, of success, sort of jumping that curve. Um, technology adoption, I'll, I'll veer off, but related is another area uh, I've been talking about for quite a while where food service and even the food retail retail side, excuse me, have seriously lagged behind other industries in adopting new technologies that can streamline and make our supply chains much more efficient, all leading to greater profits and greater um, customer satisfaction. So there are numerous examples like that that say we need to get better at understanding how to get to the future. All right. So it seems that Overall, your characterization of leadership is that it's a little bit short-sighted and perhaps a little bit lacking in the technology department. But for our listeners who are food industry executives, what can they do to become a better leader and adapt to the changing business uh, climate that we've seen since the pandemic started? I think, Chris, there's a couple of basic steps that I would recommend uh, if I were running one of these companies. And it all starts with the customer. Um, even before the pandemic, there's there's been tremendous change at how people eat how people shop, 
uh, how the Amazons of the world have um, uh, come in from the outside and really dramatically impacted and provided options for customers to buy products. Uh, you've got to start with the customer. Uh, what does that customer look like today? And what will they look like two, three, five years down the road? And then again, I go back to my whiteboard analogy. You sort of forget what we're doing today and figure out what is the best path to that customer that makes my company achieve the objectives that I need to achieve. And that involves the human resources side, the technology side, the physical plant considerations, and, and everything attendant to getting a product from conception to a customer. Um, now, I recognize that's high level and it's strategy, but you can't get to the tactical pieces until you understand the strategy and vision and everybody's on board on, on where you were going. So start with the customer and then build backwards from there. So I think that about wraps it up for us this week on the Food Institute podcast. Once again, I'd really like to thank Rick for his time today. I think it was a really spirited and insightful conversation. And Rick, I just have to ask, where can our listeners go to learn more about Pentelec? Chris, it's been a pleasure. And again, thanks very much for uh, allowing me the time to speak today. Uh, you can learn everything you need to know about Pentelec at pentelec.com. And my email is rickA at pentelec.com. So we'll definitely share the relevant links in the description of this video, and we'll also share a link to the article that Rick submitted to the July 20th edition of the Food Institute Report. It's a very insightful piece, and food and beverage executives should definitely read it and get an idea of where the food industry could be going in the next couple of years and the leadership that will be required to successfully navigate the challenges that are affecting the industry at large in the current moment. So with that all said, if you're new to the Food Institute podcast, please follow, like, and share. Returning listeners, we'd also ask that you like and share so that we can expand our reach. If you'd like to learn more about the Food Institute, please take a look at the links in our description, and you can find out more about what membership could do for you and your company. So until next time, this is Chris Campbell signing off.